0: Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. who take refuge in him. Let's pray. We come before you and bow before you as the king, as the king of heaven and earth, as our king, as the ruler of the kings on earth. That's who you are. You sit on a throne now and help us to hear what your word says this morning and help us to respond to you appropriately as king. Help us to be steadied by this passage, knowing that you sit enthroned in the heavens and you do whatever you please. Help us to be encouraged by this. Help us to be challenged by it. Help us to be humbled by it. And help us to draw near to you. And as verse or 11 says, rejoice with trembling this morning. In your name we pray, amen. amen. You know, historically, it's been understood that the Lord Jesus Christ occupies three offices simultaneously. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now kids, I want you to remember this, okay? I'm going to quiz you after church today. Jesus occupies, and parents, three offices simultaneously. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. Jesus is our prophet. He's a teacher. He speaks the truth of God to us. We just went through Hebrews. If you remember way back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus speaks the truth of God to us. He is God's final message to us. Of course, in his ministry, Jesus spent much time preaching and teaching. The longest sermon recorded in the Bible Well, spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So, Jesus is our prophet. He is a prophet to end all prophets. He is the prophet. He is our prophet. He is also our priest. Jesus is our high priest. And as priest, Jesus does two things. He sacrifices for sin, he atones for sin, and he intercedes for us. And of course, we just finished Hebrews, which spends a lot of time talking about the priesthood of Christ. Kids talking, it does not bother me at all, okay? Mine's right up here, and he's making noise too, so. Jesus is our priest. That's right, that's right. He's our, he's so, he atones for our sins, And praise his name, he sacrificed himself once, Hebrews says. It labors to make this point, once to take away our sins forever. There are no more sacrifices being made for our sins because Christ has sacrificed himself once to take away our sins for all time. And he's also our priest in that he intercedes for us. He is at the Father's right hand, going between us and the Father, interceding for us. And maybe my favorite verse in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Jesus always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Right? So Jesus is our priest as well as our prophet, but Jesus is also our king. What does a king do? What does a king do? A king rules and reigns. A king is in charge. And a king fights battles for his people. Psalm chapter 2 is a passage about the enthronement of Jesus Christ as king. Now we love, we love the message of Christ. When we read the gospels, we love to hear the words of Christ except for the things he says to the Pharisees, if we think they apply to us, of course. But we love to hear the message of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a message from our prophet. We love the priesthood of Christ, the the eternal ministry of Jesus as priest. He's taken away our sins. He's always at the Father's right hand. We can always draw near to God through him. Jesus as king, however, sometimes we struggle with that. Jesus is our king. That's what Psalm 2 is about. Now, of course, the psalm was written by King David, and in an immediate sense, when he wrote this, it was about his enthronement as God's anointed king of Israel. But under the influence of the Spirit, in the spirit of prophecy, David is announcing the eternal king, the one who would sit on the throne forever, which we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems obvious from the language of this psalm that it's, it's, it's talking about someone other than David, ultimately. The, the universal language that all the nations are going to be his heritage, and the ends of the earth are going to be his possession. That may have applied in some limited sense to David, the nations around him, the borders of his country, but it it applies to Jesus in a universal sense. This passage is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ as our king. Furthermore, Jesus teaches us that all the Psalms are ultimately about him. Right? I love the, the passage in Luke 24 when Jesus, he, he meets up with a couple of disciples. They don't recognize him. He's risen from the dead and he has a Bible study with them. And it says he begins to show them from the prophets, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, all the things concerning him. I would have loved to have been part of that Bible study. Yes. All the Psalms ultimately point to Christ. The New Testament affirms that this Psalm, chapter 2, Psalm 2, is about Christ with clear references to it about Jesus. You know, right now, it's very easy to see the greatness of troubles in our world, and maybe you would say, yeah, the world, but my life too, Into me, I got troubles, It's easy to see the greatness of troubles, the greatness of the devil, the greatness of our difficulties, the greatness of evil in the world, evil men doing evil things. And we need our eyes lifted to see the greatness of our King who rules and reigns, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's jump in. This psalm gives us a fourfold picture. Fourfold picture. First, it shows us the nations raging. Second, it shows us the Lord mocking, laughing. Third, it announces this king. The Lord announces his king. And then fourth, it shows us how we should respond. This, this psalm shows us the nations raging. Verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations are raging in this psalm. Verses 1 through 3 are indicative of man's rebellion against God. Natural man despises the rule of God, right? Natural man despises God over them, ruling and reigning over them. Acts chapter 4 quotes these verses, verses 1 and 2, and it it uses them to describe the raging and rebellion both of those that are ruling and then regular people, those that are being ruled. It shows us the raging of princes and paupers of the high and low in society. Acts chapter 4 uses verses 1 and 2. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And then it says, for truly in this city... Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles are raging. David, when he writes this, seems shocked. He says, Why are the nations raging? Notice three things in verses 1 through 3. First, the futility of their raging, it's vain. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's a vain plot. The New American Standard says, why are they devising a vain thing? Resistance is futile, right? Where's that? What's that from? Is that from Star Trek, I think? Okay, okay. I'm not, a, I'm not a Trekkie at all, but I think I remember it's from Star Trek. Resistance is futile. It's vain. Notice second, the target of the rebellion, it's against the Lord and his anointed. When the nations are raging, when the nations are angry, when they're breaking out in rebellion against God, it's ultimately against God and his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, notice the motivation of their rebellion. Why are the peoples raging? Here's why. They don't want to live under God's rule. They think God is an enslaving taskmaster. Listen to the words. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The Lord and His anointed. They think God is an enslaving taskmaster, not knowing that they are enslaved. Sinful men, apart from Christ, they're enslaved to their own sins. And only the Lord can set them free. This is the myth of human autonomy. And we're all born with it. We don't want to live under God's rule. Maybe some here right now are thinking, I don't want to live under God's rule. We want to do what we want to do. Every parent, you talk, talk, when you have children, you know, and, and your child does something they know they're not supposed to do. This just happened this last week in my home. And you ask the question, why? Which isn't always the most fruitful question to ask, but why did you do that? because you're looking for some great answer, right? And the most honest and maybe the deepest answer is, because I wanted to. Ah. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want God ruling over us because we want to do what we want. This is the cycle that we see in the book of Judges. Over and over again, the people turn away from God, right? Not wanting to live under his lordship. Then a marauding nation comes and kicks their butts and then they cry out to God for help and the Lord sends a judge to rescue them and this happens again and again and again for 21 chapters and hundreds of years over those 21 chapters. Again and again. Judges chapter 16, or excuse me, chapter 17, verse 6 says something ominous. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then chapter 18, 19, and 20, it, says, it repeats that the first part of that phrase. There, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then the last verse of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, again repeats these haunting words in those days there was no king in israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes everyone did what they wanted they were lovers of self lovers of pleasure but there's something we need to understand this doing what's right in our own eyes When we see this happening, and we've all done it, but when we see this happening, for those apart from Christ, it comes from a deep inward enmity with God. It's not just what people do. It's that it comes from a heart that is against God. That's the point of Psalm 2. The nations are raging. They're saying we will not have him rule over us. If ever there was a man who raged against God in the 20th century, I'm sure you could think of many others. If ever there was a man who raged against God in the 20th century, it was a man named Frederick Nietzsche, actually 19th century, died early 20th century. Nietzsche is the man who infamously claimed God is dead. He remains dead and we have killed him. Interesting, Nietzsche spent the last 10 or 11 years insane being cared for by his mother and sister before he died. But Nietzsche simply spoke what many people think and would do if they could. And in fact, we don't even have to imagine what people would do if they could when God came in the flesh. When the eternal Son of God clothed himself in humanity and walked among us and dwelt among us and taught and healed the sick and spoke God's truth, he was murdered. He was killed. He was hung on a tree. That's actually how the New Testament interprets Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That's the the interpretation, the direct interpretation, for after quoting Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. The rulers, the kings, they set themselves against God and against his anointed. Here's what the disciples pray after quoting that. They're gathered together for a prayer meeting. After Peter and John had been released from custody, Under the Jewish leaders, they pray and they say this, For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So when they had the opportunity the raging people with enmity in their hearts killed the son of god let me ask you do you hear the people's the people in our world right now raging they're so much raging I used to listen to a group when I was in high school and I would not suggest I'm going to tell you the name of the band not because I want you to listen to them because don't. But some of you have heard of them Rage Against the Machine and their music is full of rage against the machine against the man right? But ultimately there is a rage against the God man and it's Everywhere Now, of course, I'm a man of my own times, and so uh, it may not be true, but I, it seems like it's getting louder and louder. I'm sure that some would dispute that. I think of Chinese Christians who lived under Mao's reign and so forth. But here, anyways, it seems like it's being amplified. For instance, the increasing, sex, uh, increasing celebration of, things, of sexual perversion of all kinds The perversion of marriage, the, the, the defacing and defaming of marriage as God's good gift to humanity between, between one man and one woman for life, for so-called homosexual unions. The promotion of transgendered confusion, abortion on demand for any reason or no reason, these things are not primarily a raging against traditional values. It's a raging against God and his Christ. The degrading of certain people because of their, the color of their skin or their ethnicity, whether black or white or brown or Hispanic or African or Anglo, whatever. There's so much raging just remember, <clears throat> as we hear this, as we see this, as we are in the midst of it, we're called to live in this world. We're not just to completely distance ourselves. We're called to live in this world and be a light for Christ. We need to remember it's, the, the raging is futile. It's in vain. And it's ultimately against the Lord and against his good and just rule. Well, what does the Lord do? How does he respond to this raging in Psalm chapter 2? He laughs. Not some big belly laugh, I don't think. Not, beca- not, not because it's some kind of joke, but because of the foolishness of the raging. Verse 4 and 5 He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. How does the Lord respond to this conspiracy against him? He laughs at it. He holds them in derision, he holds them in contempt. This week, I actually found this very helpful. (laughs) Not because I hadn't read this before or even thought about it, but it just just landed on me in a very, very encouraging and helpful way. Our King, the Lord Jesus, is not in heaven wringing his hands at what's going on down here, wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to gain the upper hand here? he laughs. Those who set themselves against God, he holds them in derision. Listen to the first part of verse four. I love this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The one who sits in the heavens, the one who is a Above, and he's sitting. The raging of the nations doesn't even get God off his seat. He sits. One of the names of God in the Scriptures is El Elyon. El is the Hebrew word for God. Elyon is Most High. He is God Most High. He is God who is high above. He is sitting in the heavens. And I quoted this earlier, and he does whatever he pleases. And this is so meant to be an encouragement for us as his people. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Enemies of God conspire. They take counsel together against him and against his Christ. And he laughs, he mocks. And we too, by faith, may laugh. Because the raging against the Lord, it's not going to work. Their plans against him are not going to work. He's going to thwart their plans. He is thwarting their plans. Evil may seem as though it's on the ascendancy, but our king will triumph in the end. No doubt. And even more than that, he is sovereignly working in the midst of the raging, accomplishing his will. Will. That's actually, going back to Acts chapter 4, that prayer the disciples prayed, that's actually what they said. They affirmed this. They said all this raging against you and against your Christ, what they did, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles, what they did is they did what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. That's amazing. The most evil act in all of human history where the Son of God was hung on a tree was evil men carrying out God's plan. He did it then and he does it now. Now, of course, we don't mock people or laugh at them in some kind of antagonistic way. That's, that's not the way of Christ. But through faith, we can see the way the Lord does and ultimately we understand that it is Satan who is the real enemy and often he's the mastermind behind these futile attempts to thwart God's purposes And we may, with the Lord, laugh at and mock him. Listen to what Martin Luther said. There's an important phrase here that I think we need to understand. He says, I often laugh at Satan. And there's nothing that makes him so angry as when I attack him to his face and tell him that through God, through God, I am more than a match for him. Amen? The Lord laughs. But he doesn't just laugh. He also announces his king in, this, in Psalm 2. The announcement of the king, verses 6 to 9. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's the Lord's answer for this raging in Psalm 2? He announces that he has coronated his king. He has set his king on a throne. He He has enthroned his king. And it's powerful, verses 6 and 9, how this king is described. First, he has been enthroned. Past tense. He has been enthroned. Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, Zion, of course, in the time of David, was the city of David, was Jerusalem. Or even more specifically, it was a hill outside of old Jerusalem. Relating to Christ, I believe this is describing the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly city where Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand upon his ascension to the Father's right hand. Our text says that Jesus as king is conquering his enemies. Verse 9, he's subduing enemies. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this certainly has, has to do with the future when Christ will subdue all of his enemies, but Paul also applies this to the present. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26, where Paul says, for Jesus must reign now until every enemy is put under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus, right now, at the Father's right hand, is ruling and reigning and subduing enemies, destroying enemies. Enemies are being put under his feet. This is how he's ruling and reigning among the nations, among those who don't know him. But of course, as believers, we know that Jesus is rules as a benevolent, gentle, gracious king to us. I love this quote from John Newton. I think I maybe shared this one time a while back. He said that Jesus rules his people, not his people, his covenant people, not with a rod of iron like he does the nations, like he does, I'm sorry, like he does those who are sworn enemies of his, but with a golden scepter of love. This is how Jesus rules as enthroned king. But verse verse 7 also says that this king is a beloved son. And I found this, again, so helpful, that Christ is our king, but he is is one with the Father in his rule and reign. Verse 7 says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus was begotten. I think this is a reference to his resurrection. Jesus was begotten in the sense that God raised him from the dead, giving him new birth into new creation glory. He's the first to be raised from the dead, the first fruits you and I will come after. The Father was powerfully, by declaring him, This begotten son was declaring Jesus Christ not merely his eternal son, but his son and reigning king. And I think that's how Paul applies this in Acts chapter 13 when he's preaching in Antioch. He quotes Psalm chapter two, verse seven. But notice what verse eight says about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ as king. It implies that he will have universal dominion. The Father speaks to the Son and says, Ask, and the nations are yours. Ask, and the ends of the the earth are your possession. The nations, I think, speaking of all the peoples on the earth, not just countries, geographical countries, but all the peoples, all the people groups and tribes on the face of the earth, Jesus wants them all. And many of them have not heard the gospel yet. So there is a application here of evangelism and the, the Great Commission. What was the Great Commission? Make disciples of all nations. Jesus, in Revelation 4.9, it says of him that he poured out his blood to ransom people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And the promises that the ends of the earth will be his possession. Abraham Kuyper, he was a Dutch theologian, he was actually a prime minister of Holland. I think it was Holland, as Holland. He said this there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. The Father has promised it to him. It belongs to him. And when he comes again, he will lay claim to what the Father has promised. He will lay claim to what belongs to him. This is so important for you and I to see Jesus in this way. In evangelicalism in America, we, we like to talk about Jesus as our personal Savior, and of course, He is. We, we like to talk about relationship with Jesus, and of course, that's massively important. But what's also important to see is that this Jesus, that is our personal Savior that we can be in relationship with, is the cosmic King of everything. He is not a little Savior I can put in my back pocket and take out when I want. He is not, as Johnny Carson said, just my own personal Jesus. He is so much more than that. Was it Johnny Cash who wrote that song? I think. He is so much more than that. He is glorious. He is the king of all nations. He is on a throne. When he comes again, he will lay claim to all that belongs to him. He is victorious. He is sovereign. He is reigning and ruling one who cannot be contained and will not be denied what has been promised to him, namely all nations, all peoples, and the ends of the earth. And stunningly, we can know him personally. It's amazing. Well, let me ask you, how should we respond to a king like this? How should we respond to This King, Jesus Christ, verses 10 through 12 show us. Let me read it and then let's just look at a few phrases from it. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That first phrase, be wise and be warned. Saying, listen up. I'm, it's like David, the author, well, the Holy Spirit, right? David was inspired by the Spirit to write this. It's like he's saying, be wise, be warned, listen up. I'm gonna, sh- I'm gonna tell you how you must respond to this king. Of course, so much more could be said. Each one of these phrases could be talked about at length. But I'm going to try to keep my remarks brief. So let's look at four phrases. How do we respond to this king? I'm going to take them a little bit out of order from where they are in the text. The first thing is we are to kiss the son. We are to kiss the son. It means to adore him and submit to him. It means to lovingly pledge our allegiance to Christ. Right? The emperor w- would wear a ring and you would kiss it to pledge your allegiance to him whether you adored him or not. Relating to Christ, we are to kiss him in the, me- in the sense of adoring him and submitting to him. We're to embrace Christ as precious and bow before him as holy. We are to adore him. I love the old Christmas song we sing. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Thomas Watson, a Puritan author, or pastor and author, said, adoration is a crown jewel to Christ and to his crown. So, if I asked you, do you believe in Christ? Most of you would say yes. Do you adore Christ? Does he have your admiration and adoration? That's important. And does he have your submission, your subjection to him as your king? Saul, when he anointed, excuse me, Samuel, when he anointed Saul as king, he kissed him, not because he adored him, but because he understood Saul was his king. So kiss the son. Kiss the son. And there's a warning attached to this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Jesus will not just be stoically believed in. He is to be adored and loved and cherished and treasured. So kiss the son lest he be angry for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now that phrase, quickly kindled, can be taken, I think, in a wrong way. I don't think it means that Jesus or that the Lord is hot-tempered and just quick-tempered like we might be sometimes. Rather, I think it means that his wrath could break out at any time and we are not to play games with him. I think of Hebrews chapter three and four where it repeats this phrase over and over again. If you hear the voice of the Lord today, do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness when they rebelled against God. If you hear his voice today, respond. Amen. If you hear Jesus entreating you to come to him today and bow before him in adoration, do it now, today. Kiss the Son, and do so today. Second, we are to, we are to take refuge in him. The last phrase of the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. When a refugee seeks refuge in another country, they they seek shelter from something that they're coming out of. They seek shelter from war or pestilence or genocide and so forth. We are invited to find in King Jesus a rich and fortified refuge, not only from the wrath of God, which is supreme, which we really need, no, no doubt, but also from every other danger in this life. Amen. Certainly doesn't mean we won't face dangers or even experience the pain of those dangers, but if Christ is our refuge, if our lives are hidden with Christ, if our lives are hidden in Christ, then whatever touches us is being allowed for our good. Rock of ages, cleft for me. What does it say? Let me hide myself in thee. So take refuge in Christ. Hide yourself in him. Third, we respond to Jesus as king by serving him. So we kiss him, we adore him, we take refuge in him, we hide ourselves in him, and we also serve him. Listen, if he's king, then we are his servants yes. if he's lord if he's master then we are servants i thought about this this week the, the designation paul gives himself far more than any other is not apostle it's not son of god it's bond servant of christ servant of christ He was a servant of Jesus. When we adore and embrace Christ and we take refuge in him, there will be delight to serve him and obey him, to do what pleases him. And finally, we're to rejoice in Christ with trembling. Now, those those two things seem to not go together at all rejoice and trembling it's like rejoice or tremble like and we maybe we should have times where we're just really rejoicing in the lord and then times that we're to tremble before him in holy and humble reverence and so forth they're just brought together here in verse 11 rejoice with trembling To know Jesus, no doubt, is to know joy. He is, to know him is to know joy unspeakable and full of glory, Peter says. Amen. But it is a joy that's mixed with reverence. In Revelation chapter one, the apostle John, who, was, who, who referred to himself as the beloved disciple, right? he's the one that leaned against the breast of Jesus around the table, like he and Jesus, they were tight, when he saw the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, he did not run up to him and hug him. He fell down. He fell down in fear. Of course, Jesus went over and said, put his hand on him and said, don't, don't be afraid. But that was his initial reaction was, I am in the presence of God. Rejoice with Trembling. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, there must ever be holy fear mixed with the Christian joy. This is a sacred compound yielding a sweet smell and we must see to it that we burn no other upon the altar. Fear without joy is torment and we all know that. Fear without joy is wretched torment. Torment. But he goes on to say, joy without fear is presumption. Rejoice with trembling in Jesus Christ, your king. So, Jesus is our king, amen? Amen. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and he is our king. So, take refuge in him, kiss him, serve him, and rejoice with trembling in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, and I pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts. I pray that we would know our Lord Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. To him be glory and dominion forever.